This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we speak with Rebecca Schofield, Kristen Haltner, and Matthew Grindle, three faculty from the University of Idaho, where the state legislature recently passed a law that denies state funding to public K-12 schools, colleges, and universities that indoctrinate students with critical race theory. Dr. Schofield is chair of the Department of History and associate professor of American history at the University of Idaho. Dr. Haltner is associate professor of sociology and director of the academic certificate in equity and justice. Dr. Grindle is an assistant professor of criminology in the Department of Culture, Society, and Justice. They join us to talk about academic freedom, critical race theory, and teaching and learning. Our discussion was recorded on September 15th, 2021. Stay with us. Well, Kristen, Rebecca, and Matthew, I really, really appreciate your time, and I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while, so thanks for joining us on the Annex. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's get right into it and start with the basics. How would you all define critical race theory, a topic of some controversy these days, and uh, why do you think this topic is gathering so much attention right now? We should have decided who could talk about which one first. Um, I can can go ahead. So... uh, Critical race theory is not new, and it really emerges from legal theory, which is maybe more in the weeds than we need to get. But in short, for this conversation, I think it's fair to consider critical race theory a framework for understanding contemporary racial inequality. And what's important about it, and I think key to this discussion, is the way that it recognizes how historical policies and practices affect the present. So if I can give you a quick example... If we're talking about something like the racial wealth gap, I'm teaching about it this week in my race class right now, and popular conversation about wealth and wealth inequality in the United States tends to blame individuals for a relative lack of wealth or culture, right? And Newt Gingrich infamously said that Black children should get jobs as janitors at their school because he believed that Black people lacked a particular work ethic, for example. So this is sort of the popular narrative. What critical race theory offers us, and really sociology and history more broadly, um, is a context for that. So when we look at the racial wealth gap, we see that things like slavery, that Jim Crow, that certainly disadvantaged Black people in acquiring wealth, while on the flip side, white people were literally given land through the Homestead Act uh, that they could then use to build wealth, their family's wealth. And we can see how that continued to the present, right, where we have Black returning GIs were unable to access benefits of the GI Bill that gave white GIs low-interest loans in the suburbs, and Black people were denied access to suburban land and instead forced to rent in cities. And then you can see how redlining emerged from that. And so, so what critical race theory does is provide an accurate contextualization of American American racism and racial inequality as opposed to falsely blaming people for their relative lack of wealth. Yeah, and to build on that, I think it's really important to emphasize that it is about history and these long historical contexts that bring us to a present, and that critical race theory as a large scholarly debate is not a doctrine, as Dr. Haltoner said, it's a framework through which people have debates about 
all different aspects of, of people's lives where they come in contact to these large institutions like the incarceration state or the education system or healthcare. And that it's not only helping us create that framework around race and ethnicity, but all sorts of identity markers, whether it's gender, sexual identity, religion, that we all have multifaceted ways that we exist in the world. And it is this large discussion that help people understand and grapple with those large scale systems. So I would add to that too. I think one of the things that makes a lot of the institutions, so I would you know, brought, define critical race theory largely as an examination of the institutional policies and practices that perpetuate racial inequality. And one of the things when we take a look at those policies and practices is that they appear to be overtly colorblind oftentimes, but because they build on these historical legacies of racism, they wind up having very disparate racial outcomes. So for instance, the process over the last 50 years of economic restructuring, the shift from, and this is something William Julius Wilson has written about, the process of economic restructuring, shifting from an industrial economy to a service economy, has had an adverse impact on poor people of all races. But it had an even more adverse impact on the African-American community because of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow these African-Americans traditionally were provided very, very poor educational resources. So those industrial jobs were almost literally their only source of social mobility. So when economic restructuring occurred and we shifted to a service economy where you pretty much need an education to be socially mobile, African-American communities were adversely affected far more than other groups of color or just other racial groups, period. So even if you take a look at something like economic restructuring, which on its face doesn't really have any overt signs of racism, when it builds on the historical racist legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, you can see how that specific policy can have racist implications. And I think that's been a very important insight uh, developed by critical race theorists. I think I'm starting to understand a little bit more about how sociologists and other folks who teach about the legacy and continuing effects of institutional disadvantage, inequality, white supremacy, those sorts of things get implicated or get connected to this idea of critical race theory as some kind of threat to perhaps dominant racial groups and an ideology that wants to be colorblind and really deny some of the effects of these inequities and racial injustices that persist to this day. And as a person who teaches sociology and race courses, I, just, I love also the historical connections that you're making, Dr. Schofield, to this, this conversation. I think my opinion is we need to teach in sociology more history and put these disciplines in closer contact. So let's talk a little bit about that second part of this. Like, Do you have a sense, do, do any of you have a sense of why critical race theory is an issue right now? Dr. Haltoner, you talked about how critical race theory is not at all new. It's been around in the legal academy for decades, perhaps originating with Derek Bell and others. But why today, over the last couple of years, let's say, has, has this topic become so controversial in our political life? Yeah, I think this is just the new framework that's being used to attack critical thinking in schools. I don't think it's a new practice. I'm thinking about 2010 when Texas made a number of changes to their school curriculums restricting what could and could not be taught with regards to slavery. I there was even something about like framing it as a positive thing, if you recall this. So there's been very offensive and incorrect teaching about 
the history of race throughout American schools. I mean, we have a very solid reputation of reframing history to ignore the terrible things that have happened. Um, so I, I don't think this is new. I think this is simply a repackaging of that same attacking of critical examination of history. And I think it goes to show just how successful colorblind rhetoric has been over the past 30 or 40 years. You know, that colorblind push was such a response to civil rights, was a way to say, oh, great, we did it. Everybody has the same opportunities now, so we don't need to see color. And that certainly growing up in Idaho, like I did, that was the rhetoric that we got. Everybody's equal. There is no race anymore. We're we're post-racial. And that has been very compelling to a lot of people who shifted away from sort of earlier George Wallace form of racism, segregation now, segregation forever, towards a much more successful Reagan era mantra of we don't care about race, we just care about economics and economics doesn't see race and we're all really equal now. And because of that, then we have this entire generation of students who do come from communities that maybe don't have a lot of racial diversity in the state who come and start learning about slavery. You know, I don't think I heard the term Jim Crow until I was in college. And they're learning about these legacies and sort of grappling with the idea that America's colorblind. Uh, it's the land of opportunity. And so it, it is a place in which students are getting educated about their histories and how problematic those histories are. And in the context of Black Lives Matter and a sort of political moment where everything can become a slogan or a straw man to fight against, I think that there is a wing of older conservatives who saw this as a way to say, well, you are being divisive. You are bringing race back into the conversation when we solved it in the 1980s. So I think it's been building for many decades, and this is not an actually big surprise, I think, for people who study the political realignment of the 1970s and 80s. I think that anything in which we explicitly talk about race is going to be pointed to to sowing division. I mean, I imagine there's discomfort, right? I mean, I teach in a predominantly white institution. We have quite a few students of color, Black folks and Latinx folks as well. But it's probably, I don't know if this is common for you, but teaching about race and racism does make a lot of people uncomfortable, right? Because they have been taught not to see race, and I'm using scare quotes here, or to downplay you know, the significance of racial inequality in our lives and in our society. And so is part of this, do you think, like a, an emotional reaction to bring up issues of racial injustice and, and white supremacy that folks have wanted to either sublimate or deny in public under this like colorblind liberal ideology that CRT as, a, as an academic theory really argues against in, in some ways? One thing I would add to that is, of course, critical race theory has been around since the 70s, but I think it's always, I think, to a degree posed a threat to traditional conservative values such as individualism, meritocracy, because it says if you, in the practice of those conservative ideologies, you don't account for the institutional practices that perpetuate racial inequality, then those conservative ideologies are actually operating to minimize the importance of those racial inequalities as they manifest. Because, I mean, we, we know racial inequalities, be it wealth, crime, they exist. 
And if you don't explain it through uh, these institutional practices, just as I mentioned, economic restructuring, things like that, then you're kind of left with scary explanations, accounting for individual differences, accounting for cultural differences that have overtly racist implications. But I guess what I'm trying to say is because the idea that, look, if you take colorblind ideologies such as individualism and meritocracy and you, and you don't account for these racist institutional practices that critical race theorists talk about, then those conservative ideologies will effectively contribute to those racist practices. And I think that poses a threat to conservatives because their ideologies are being questioned. And I think in the last four or five years, with the increased political polarization, with Donald Trump taking office, those threats have become a lot more salient. And I think you're seeing conservative politicians acting on them with this divisive concepts legislation, that, including what was passed in Idaho. Um, I, I want to also just mention that I think, or I don't think, I know, that studying race is liberatory for white people, for all people, right? We often focus on how people are afraid to learn about race, but I tell my students from the first day that we're going to be learning a new language here. We're going to be learning how to talk about something that our culture doesn't let us talk about. We're going to study it as a social scientist. And doing so is going to be liberatory. It's going to allow us to work together to re-envision a social structure that's more equal. And so we end the class by looking at fantasy fiction by like Jemison and others who are really exploring this question of what kind of world could we have. But by rejecting the sort of popular explanation for inequality as Matt's talking about this individualistic narrative, we're able to consider radical reform. And that is what's scary for conservatives, right, who are rejecting critical race theory. They don't want people to radically re-envision society because they're the ones who are benefiting from society as it's currently structured. I mean, what you're making me, first of all, that sounds awesome to read speculative fiction to talk about the kind of world that we might want to put as our vision out there. I mean, when I talk about this in class, I talk about it in terms of actually an inclusive, multiracial, multiethnic democracy, where actually everyone, all citizens, right, are equally listened to, right, heard, have a stake in the actual outcomes instead of what we have, it seems now, which is a, a politics that's dominated by a relatively small portion of our, of our population that really denies kind of some of our fundamental value as a society. But of course, the practice has never lived up to the rhetoric. As so right now in my class, we're interrogating this concept of social citizenship, which is you know, sort of a sociological concept that looks at citizenship, not simply about your civil rights, but your inclusion in the sort of social fabric of a country. I think Nancy Fraser and others are, have written about this. And so my students are really playing with this idea of how people of color continue to be denied social citizenship in the United States, both overtly and subtly, right? So you can think about things like how, you know, Obama's citizenship was questioned as the president of the United States, sort of this perpetual resistance, like, oh, well, he's not American, he's not white. Or when people encounter what many people call microaggressions, but what Ibram X. Kendi refers to as racial abuse, when people ask someone where they're from, and then reject their identity answer, right? Or say, no, where are you really from, right? Which, you know, doesn't let someone define themselves. And so we're playing with those ideas in class for exactly the reasons that you're outlining. Well, maybe this is a good time to talk about 
the new uh, laws that have been passed. So as of early August 2021, nine U.S. states have either enacted bans for teaching critical race theory or, quote, indoctrinating students with critical race theory in public schools. And a few states like Idaho, Oklahoma, and Iowa, but not only those, apply these policies to public colleges and universities. And what can you tell us about the new law in Idaho? Where did it come from? What does it cover? What's the status in, in your state now? It's kind of ironic. So the, the law explicitly equates critical race theory with teaching of racial supremacy, which is mind boggling because that's not what critical race theory does. And so the actual law prohibits teachers from teaching that one race, sex, or religion is, quote, inherently superior or inferior to another. And then it goes on to talk about how basically you can't make people feel bad for being a particular race or religion or sex, none of which critical race theory does. So it does explicitly say critical race theory in the law and equates it with the teaching of supremacy, but doesn't actually outlaw anything that's in critical race theory. Yeah, in a lot of ways, you could say this uh, law should kick white supremacy in the balls, um, because that's what it actually outlaws, uh, is is the teaching that one race is inherently better than another. But one thing I think I've been concerned with from the get-go on this is as university professors, we are protected to some degree. Not saying those protections will ever continue, right? We always have to take that worth a grain of salt. But we do sit in a privileged position where as what I really saw happening with this law is a sort of cooling effect, a chilling effect that happens in our K through 12 classrooms where people are are very confused. This is a very confusing law in a lot of ways. And so even in the university, we were sort of asking like, what does this actually mean? What does it actually say we can and cannot do? And for K through 12 educators who don't have those protected positions and who are much more subject to the will of their boards of education and, and parent demands, some ways we are insulated from parents, though not always, <laughs> it just throws into question what they can teach. And that then stifles any creativity, any new pedagogies, and makes it so that those people who are least protected have the most fear. Also, the focus on indoctrination really assumes a doctrine, and that is just something that critical race theory cannot have because it is a scholarly debate. So the notion that we could indoctrinate our students who are adults and who are largely choosing to be in those classrooms with a doctrine, it doesn't really hold water. So we were essentially instructed by the university of like, okay, so make sure you're not indoctrinating them. And my response was, I can't even get them to read the syllabus. Or wear their, <laughs> so I'm not, their nose. <laughs> I'm not certain I could indoctrinate them uh, if they can't even do the 30-page reading. I do think that it's really, the indoctrination is a really interesting concept, right? Especially because I think in, in most of our classrooms as sociologists, what we're trying to do is actually get students to critically examine a text, ask questions about it to sort of question its its logic, its premises, its conclusions, the evidence. Is this a good argument? Does the author support it with reasonable evidence? Is the method sound? If we're indoctrinating, I would say it's into a scientific community that has a set of standards, right? For adjudicating what is good scholarship and what is less good scholarship, right? right? right. Um, 
I, versus some type of racial ideology, which you know would be explicitly outlawed by the the law that you're talking about. Um, but also, of course, if we're going to outlaw racial ideology, I've got some in mind that we could get rid of. Yeah, in my classes, I intentionally use readings that I don't agree with so students can see how it's important to read things that you don't agree with and to think about them critically and either allow them or don't allow them to change the perspectives that you hold. And for a field like history that doesn't necessarily always grapple directly with theory, right? I would never in a class hand them a book that says critical race theory. Instead, history in the sort of teaching history, yes, comes with some theoretical lenses, some different ways of thinking about society, all of those things. But really, critical race theory is present in the history classroom based on whose histories you're teaching. That's where it's had the most impact. And my response to this law right away was, does that mean I can't teach the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who are a huge population in the state and who were disenfranchised by our state constitution, who then turned around when they got the vote and helped women get the vote as one of the first states in the union. So there's actually ways in which we know these conservative legislators want that history taught but they want to be the ones picking and choosing. They're worried that we are selecting the doctrine and they are framing themselves as the paternalistic saviors of students in the state by enacting what is essentially censorship and you could argue government overreach into classrooms, the party who says they embrace small government. And I think this also, this is sort of a personal pet peeve I have, but this perception that things need to be fairly balanced, right? And how that is misunderstood. So I was on a panel last year talking about Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And the panelists were made up of people who were race scholars who studied race. And a number of conservative attendees thought that we needed to basically have someone who didn't believe in racism on the panel in order to make it fair and balanced. But that's not fair and balanced. Fair and balanced isn't when you add someone who doesn't know anything about a topic to a panel just because they disagree, right? Fair and balanced is when you have a number of experts approaching a question from a different perspective. And so when we have conservative state legislatures trying to tell us what to teach, this is a severe overreach and a threat to academic freedom. I mean, what you're saying actually sounds like, I mean, it's definitely a threat to academic freedom and a threat to the status of expertise at the University of Idaho and other educational institutions in the state. It sounds like it's a fundamental attack on the project, you know, inquiry that challenges powerful people and institutions, ideologies, structures in ways that are central to the teaching of sociology, other social sciences, history, gender studies, all kinds of things that that many of our listeners do professionally. I mean, this is about power, right? Yes, and it's interesting it's happening in a state that wasn't exactly a purple state. There's actually a bit of interesting politicking happening in the state right now where you see from the beginnings, Idaho has been somewhat conservative, but also was the place of the Coeur d'Alene mining wars and introduced women's suffrage and went populist and times has working class minor uh, population was very leaning towards socialism. So it hasn't always been just one political party controlling the state, but it all always has tended towards anti-federalism. 
And as we saw a big wave of Reagan conservatives move into the state in the 80s, and then recently with the step towards extremism in the last four years, you, you see this power struggle happening within the Republican Party in the state where you have the more economically focused sort of run-of-the-mill Republicans who are, I wouldn't call them center-right, <laughs> but they would have been what we would have thought of as, as mainstream Republicans. And then the rise of these uh, extreme-right lobby groups who are increasingly powerful within the state because of funding. And so you see the ways in which their ideology, which they brand as libertarian, which is patently false because people who are ideologically libertarian usually would support things like abortion or gay marriage, things in which do, the state does not enter into people's personal lives. But they brand themselves as libertarian, by which they mean anti-federalist, and have lifted this issue up, which I don't think anyone in the state thought was an issue. I don't think K through 12 educators who are just trying to survive the year and keep their students alive had critical race theory on their mind when it became such a lightning rod of the legislative session. And you see the way in which they're pushing this as a federal doctrine that may not be in the state now, but is certainly on its way and is most present in the state in the universities. Therefore, that's why we should pass this legislation to make sure that this indoctrination cannot spread further, framing it as a germ or a virus <laughs> that they need to sort of circle the wagons and, and protect people from. But not the actual virus. That's... But not the actual virus. And I would like to tie in there your comment about expertise. One of the state representatives from my hometown of Emmett, Idaho, said about medical expertise, that expertise leads to totalitarianism. And that's why we should disregard the opinions of, of medical experts. And you see that in the same way in which they talk about critical race theory, that it's ultimately a student's feelings that are most important. We don't want to make anyone feel guilty about slavery. And if you do that, even just by teaching the facts of history, then you're somehow in violation of this law, which is a very difficult thing to control our student feelings, as my evaluations have shown. I did want to follow up on this idea of feelings. And it seems to me that when these conversations come up, like whose feelings we are protecting is often unstated, but very much present in these laws. So for example, like teaching the facts of redlining and residential segregation and school, lack of school integration, school resegregation, if that makes a white student feel bad, perhaps learning those things actually makes a student of color feel recognized and affirmed in their experiences, right? They, they're given some language to understand how it is that they got into a school that was 90% plus you know, students of color like them, whereas another school maybe in the same town was equally ethnically or racially homogenous, but in the other direction or in another direction. And so I'm constantly struck by whose feelings we are protecting and the trade-offs that we as society in terms, in terms of public policy are willing to trade off. It seems to me like the feelings of people of color are often the ones that are on the chopping block when we're protecting the feelings of our majority white students or white populations. But that's also the way in which childhood has always been structured as white and that black children are always already adults 
and that their feelings actually don't matter because they're hardened and that that rhetoric is so deeply embedded in 19th and 20th century plays and literature and and movies and how that plays out with the school to, to prison pipeline, how that plays out with especially young Black women and how they're never allowed to be children. And therefore, because they're not seen as children, their feelings are, are disregarded. And the sort of extension of that, of having to convince my students often that they are indeed adults at this point in their life. Um, and yet you see this, this sort of paternalistic overreach as a way to protect white adults as if they were children. I also talk to my students about feelings quite a bit in the classroom. Ironically, I think white people would probably not feel bad about learning these histories had they learned them as children. I mean, I have a five-year-old, right? So we talk about this stuff all the time. And he's aware of our country's history and how race works as much as a five-year-old can be. And, you know, it's certainly an example of white privilege that most white kids don't learn those things when kids of color have to learn how to navigate a racist world from infancy. But as an aside, so in my classes, I talk about feelings and I say, you know, this might make you feel a particular way. It might make you feel bad or sad or guilty or shameful, regardless of your race, right? It might also be shame evoking to know that your ancestors were treated badly, right? That the shame can run in in multiple directions. And I encourage my students to consider reframing or repackaging that into a sense of responsibility. So these things happened in the past and we are living in an unequal world as a result of them. But we are all here together to do this work to make it better. So we have a responsibility as the inheritors of this social problem to solve it. And I think that that reframing is really helpful for students to move through guilt or shame and into action and agency. So within a lot of these divisive concept bills that are passing various state legislatures, it's it's one of the divisive concepts that's oftentimes brought up is making people feel guilty for the actions of their ancestors and is Kristen points out in her class, and as I do in mine, uh, it, we don't frame it that way. We frame it in the sense as, of course, you're not responsible for the actions of your ancestors, but those actions, those historical actions have led to an unequal world, which white people benefit from. And it doesn't mean you have to feel guilty about it or terrible about it or take the blame, but we frame it as we have to come together responsibly and try to find a way to end these institutional patterns of inequality and end the institutional practices that foster it. And it seems that, and I mean, this is no surprise given how the politically polarizing context within which this discussion is happening, but it just seems to be that the portrayal of critical race theory and these so-called divisive concepts is a straw man of what we're actually doing in the classroom. A couple months ago, alongside all of this, the state also rejected a federal grant of $6 million that would have helped with early childhood development programs. And they said it was because they're going to indoctrinate our children to be activists. And they often frame the, the social justice ideology as one explicitly about training people to be activists. And I find that very interesting because in some ways, yes, we are saying this is your world. It's your democracy. It's up to you to save it. We're not telling you how to vote or what to do, but we do give you the tools to be critical thinkers and to be engaged citizens. And this concern about creating activists 
is very interesting for a state that prides itself on grassroots movements and anti-federalism and having the ability to shape your government to represent the people. And so you would think that they would be on board with activist citizens, people who know their rights, who are well informed of them. A lot of political groups in the state are very adamant about their Second Amendment rights. They push the ability to have their constitutional rights protected. And yet when we do that within the the context of positive action toward equity, then it's framed as we're teaching them to be social activists and that that is a negative. So it's an interesting turnaround from a group of people who very much want activists to show up and burn masks at the the Capitol steps, but don't want activists to show up to to protest police brutality or unequal access to health care. Or even denying their very identity as activists. I mean, if you take a look at how conservative media portrayed the BLM protests in the summer of 2020 versus, let's say, for instance, the January 6th protests, it's almost like they even want to deny, not just deny their right to protest, but when they do protest and mischaracterize it as violence or rioting. Well, I love how we've opened up so many important and fundamental issues in terms of democracy and citizenship and engagement and really empowering, as uh, Dr. Haltner said earlier, about empowering students to be actively engaged in in their role as citizens. Maybe it'd be helpful to hear the story about how the issue of CRT came to be um, on the Idaho legislature's radar. If it's something external to Idaho, if it's not really being taught extensively in schools, especially K-12 schools, if it is mostly isolated to university classrooms, and truth be told, there aren't a ton of universities in the state of Idaho, then what's the catalyst for this bill itself? Well, I don't think you can... Matt, did you want to talk about the more extreme bill, too, that you had found? Yeah, so it's it, it, there should be a distinction made here, and I'm not trying to minimize the, the prevalence of the bill that we're having to work with now, but I believe the current bill we're having to work with now, HB 377, is a kind of ban across the different state legislatures in the U.S. There really have been two types of bills, bills that ban the, quote, indoctrination of, quote, divisive concepts. So I think the wording HB 377 uses is, shall not directly or otherwise compel students to personally affirm, adopt, or adhere to any of these particular beliefs, but otherwise permit the teaching of the concepts insofar as the teaching doesn't involve this type of indoctrination. Whereas the more extreme bill, the more extreme bills that have been passed, I think in Oklahoma is one example, but in a few other states as well. And the uh, the more extreme variant involves just an all-out ban of any teaching of the concepts, uh, regardless of whether or not it involves indoctrination as it's so defined. And that bill, there is currently a variant of that kind of all-out ban in the Idaho state legislature. It's HB 352, which at least according to the bill numbers appears to have been introduced first. So I don't know if this gets at your question, but the thing that worries me most is as challenging as dealing with the current bill is the fact that if the growing political sentiment, let's say, to act on critical race theory and act on these, quote, divisive concepts, if there's more inertia for that built up, let's say, through the lieutenant governor's task force on this issue, that bill, HB 352, might eventually wind up on the governor's desk to be signed. And that, I think, would be really disastrous for higher education because 
you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, if you don't talk about the institutional practices that are oftentimes hidden under this idea of colorblind ideology and that perpetuate these racial inequalities, if you're not allowed to talk about those, then in that vacuum, explanations of racial inequality wind up resorting to cultural inferiority, individualistic explanations, and things like that, which I think would be disastrous for race relations in this country. So as challenging as dealing with the current bill is, it could potentially be worse. And that's what I'm concerned about. But I mean, to answer your question, I don't think you can ignore the broader national context within which this is occurring. But if you want to answer like within the context of University of Idaho, that's occurring within the broader national context, the actions of a libertarian think tank by the name of the Idaho Freedom Foundation have published reports, I think in the end of 2020, early 21 documenting, it looks like through content analyses of the Boise State and U-Idaho websites and their press releases, have documented, quote, social justice ideology themes in policies of the universities, the curriculum of the universities. And it's, I mean, I won't go off on a tangent, but I can if you want me to. Some of that research is just... um, Embarrassingly poor. uh, Yeah, thank you. Uh, I was trying to be polite. So it seems that, you know, what they're trying to get at is this type of indoctrination. And they, they are actually barely accurate in terms of describing what social justice ideology is, in terms of kind of saying that society is made up of powerful and the powerless and institutional and structural practices, structural arrangements help to perpetuate that. And we need to diagnose this and then we, we need to diagnose where those exist and then work to overcome those and correct them. But then when they go on to identify those practices in our curriculum, it seems like they code anything as a social justice ideology that even mentions any social factor or any social characteristic, then it is automatically coded as a course that propagates a social justice ideology. So for instance, the one I found that I mentioned yesterday to some folks is that within our criminology program, we offer a course on gender and crime, which was identified as a course in their report on University of Idaho. And they highlighted the first sentence of the course description, which says, uses criminological and sociological theories to understand the relationship between gender and crime. And that was reflective in their analysis of a social justice ideology. And I'm like, that is one of, you know, the gendered nature of offending and victimization is one of the most incredibly well-documented and one of the most researched, well-researched questions in the field of criminology. Yet that's considered a social justice ideology. It's like, it's almost if, if you make any concession to social factors, contributing to a social problem as opposed to individual factors or what have you. Even if you are not using social justice rhetoric to explain why that problem exists, then you are considered propagating a social justice ideology. And that's just mind-boggling. I just don't get it because sociologists have been doing that for 100 years. They've been identifying- Wait, Matthew, that's not a smoking gun? I mean, I mean, that's just one example. That was- well, one of the worst ones, but I mean, if, if you know, you, I mean, are you basic, are they basically saying that the presence of a social problem is social justice ideology? No, not at all. And even pointing at one agenda, I mean, you know, the course description doesn't even get into themes like patriarchy and possibly gender related social justice themes. It just talks about the relationship between gender and crime. 
And that was coded as reflective of a social justice ideology. So it was mind boggling to me. And it just seems that they start out with, at least from a conservative point of view, this idea that we're going to try to spot examples of this ideology, but then they just go nuts reporting any mention of social factors. I'm sorry, I, I went off on a bit of a tangent, but those reports from the Idaho Freedom Foundation, I think, were themselves inspired by the national context we've spoken about. But I think then those those reports in turn help provide the impetus for the bill that was passed and the bill, the more extreme bill that's currently in the legislature. So Dan, I think you had asked about the timeline of how this sort of happened. And I'm, I'm not entirely clear on that, but my understanding is that the Idaho Freedom Foundation, this independent think tank, which is run by people who, as Becca mentioned, sort of identify, claim to be libertarians, but don't fully reflect libertarian ideology in their practice. And so they developed this 39-page report about the University of Idaho. And as Matt is saying, it's poorly done. I mean, they inaccurately name our department, for example. They didn't include my race class, which is quite frankly very hurtful because that class is, is rich with social justice content. But they also handpicked things to address, right? So they talk about how we have a women's center on campus, but they failed to mention that we also have an organization called Mobilizing Men. They're handpicking things to use as examples. If it was an, if a student in my class turned it in, they would have failed. It was, it was bad. But nonetheless, this report happened at about the same time that Boise State had an allegation against it in one of their freshman seminar courses that they were making white people feel bad. And it turned out that the person who made the complaint wasn't even in the class and had no evidence. And then they had an independent entity evaluate what happened. And it turns out that the allegations were false, that nothing happened. But the university still lost $400,000 in state funding as a result of the controversy. And so I think all of this together has really galvanized sort of resistance to critical teaching or critical thinking in schools. And it's really infuriating because at the same time, the universities have done very little to create a counter narrative. As institutions of higher learning, we have a responsibility to create a counter narrative to what's being said about critical race theory, but it's largely not happening from our institutions in the state. It's happening from a lot of independent groups, not necessarily in Idaho, but nationwide, like on social media, right? You see all of these conversations, such as this podcast, what is critical race theory? What's up? What is all this about? But the universities aren't taking a lead in creating that counter narrative. And so instead, people are really emboldened to continue to critique the university and the work that it's doing. And I think partly that is very realistically, because one thing that happened was the the legislature went on a three-week hiatus due to COVID. There were so many COVID cases in Idaho in March in the legislature, they had to go on hiatus. And that was the moment when both HB 377 and the entire education budget were both in discussions. And IFF put forth a really strong campaign, had robocalls, were sort of whipping up sediment within the legislature that they would not pass any education budget without the passage of HB 377. So they became intimately tied to our funding. And we already saw IFF has actually targeted Boise State consistently first. 
and have been harassing professors down there for a very long time. They're very aggressive about using the Freedom of Information Act to get professor syllabi, to look at emails, those sorts of things. And so this has been building for quite some time. And I actually believe IFS as as an organization took COVID bailout money and they had a lot of economic power this year to really drive that message home that CRT was causing hate, promoting hate and a pretty broad misinformation campaign. And because it's so intimately tied to our funding, the universities have sort of taken a step back and said, oh, well, we don't indoctrinate, so it's not our problem. And I think you were saying about whose voices matter, that actually leaves our K through 12 educators out to dry a little bit. We in the university are used to being hated. We are used to being called communists, female professors being called out and all sorts of bad things. But I think K through 12 educators really felt it this year and how they were targeted because they had sacrificed so much to keep the economy going, to keep students, parents happy, all of these things. And then all of a sudden they're in the center of a controversy that they have no idea why it even exists. So I think it was the sort of long-term campaign that groups like IFF have been running in the state sort of combined with economic opportunity and the publication of the UI report. And honestly, studying education in the state took 70 years to get kindergarten created. We were one of the last states to have kindergarten and it was always about money. So I think like there have always been people in the state who would like to spend less on education. And even if they don't ideologically believe in the sort of anti-CRT stuff, it's a really good excuse to cut education spending, which is a big goal of many people even if they're not from that extreme right contingent, it just becomes a great way to be like, finally, the public's behind (laughs) cutting education spending. So I think it was the sort of contingency of a lot of different pieces that have been slowly moving. And this was the year that they got the sort of top down green light. I mean, obviously, a lot of these boilerplate bills are being handed down from organizations at the national level. And places like Idaho have always, whether it's, you know, gun legislation, whatever, it's a great test ground to see what people can get away with as far as passing extreme legislation. What I think is perhaps even more frightening is that after all of this happened, our lieutenant governor created a so-called education task force which seeks to, quote, examine indoctrination in Idaho education. And so what they're doing is they create, they hand-selected a number of far-right activists throughout the state, and they solicit stories of indoctrination from the public. They choose which stories to listen to and ignore those from our students that are telling them, in fact, they're not being indoctrinated. It's not clear what they're going to do with the results of this task force, but it feels very much like a McCarthy witch hunt. They are attempting to name us so that we can be harassed by the public in much of the same ways. And I think this too makes K through 12 teachers extra vulnerable more than just university faculty. I mean, we are at risk, but the K through 12 teachers are the people that are really facing the brunt of this. And I think as Becca is saying, they have very little recourse and protection. Well, they live in the communities that they serve. I mean, like, so 
Moscow, right, as a town is not that big. There are larger cities in the state. And getting there can be, you know, you got to get in the car, you got to drive and so forth, right? Versus like your local neighborhood school, those, those teachers live in the community. They're accessible. They're obviously their community members. So your point about how the potential sort of fallout from this is not equally distributed, I think is a really important one to be monitoring. I will say um, I've been very impressed with the organization of a lot of educational organizations in Idaho. For instance, Idaho Education News, one of the news sites actually FOIA'd Freedom of Information Act. The governor emailed to see what the support divide was on HB 377. And in their analysis, they said all of 70% of the emails the governor received on the issue were against the CRT ban but he, he moved forward and signed it anyways. And so there has been a lot of mobilization of those K through 12 organizations. And I think that this was the moment when people realized this is an actual issue. I think the way that multiple university presidents, multiple leaders in the state have said, you know, this is just a far right phenomenon. They don't have the majority in the legislature. And this was the moment in which that was proven wrong. And those of us who've been naysaying for a couple of years were like, told you. And so what I hope is that there is going to be an, an organized response, maybe not from the institutions that fear for their budgets. And rightfully so. We, I mean, we have been through just rounds and rounds of cuts. I understand that fear. None of us want to lose our jobs. But you also have to have a moral stake. There actually isn't two sides to a debate about racism. There's not two sides to present there. And so the hope is that a lot of these organizations are mobilizing to protect their students and to protect um, their teachers and faculty. Can I tell you one interesting side effect has actually been a massive increase in the number of students who want to take our race classes. We typically offer one section of that class every fall, and we are now offering two full sections because there was such demand this year. And it's not an easy class to get into. You have to have taken several prereqs. The, the, there's been a significant interest on the part of students, and I think it's partially in response to the legislature. And I think it's also emboldened a lot of BUI faculty to sort of double down on the content that we're presenting to students. So I, for example, added everything that was highlighted as dangerous, right? So the 1619 project is in there, right? All of these things that I didn't include in the past, now that they've been flagged as troubling, they are now added to the class, right? And so it's had some interesting unintended consequences. Yeah. And a lot of the history departments, for instance, like this help me reach out to chairs of history at Boise State and Idaho State. And we spoke about organizing an association of college history teachers in the state in which we would have an organization not only to come together and support each other and talk about new pedagogies and present research and do all of those sorts of things, but also just to talk about the pieces of legislation that are coming through and come to kind of a consensus of for faculty, how would this look in your classroom? What does this mean? Should we have an organized response or, or can we just inform members and they can call their local representatives? So I do think it has had this unintended consequence of bringing people together who had not been in conversation previously. Well, that sounds good. That sounds good. I mean, I do. I think that the so interesting, right, is that the fact that going after this at K-12 actually ironically puts the conversation at the local level. And then parents 
ask their local kid's teacher and the kid's teacher says, I don't even know what that is. And clearly I'm trying to teach your kid how to read and write so that they can get a job and contribute to society and be a, a healthy, positive, contributing community member, politically and otherwise. And this is the getting in the way of doing my job and supporting your own kid. So thinking about, in some ways, sort of movement dynamics, right? Political movement dynamics is, um, is an important part of this conversation. I think it's also important to remember that racism is also reproduced in schools. And so we're talking about critical race theory, but we're actually ignoring then the ways that students are taught to be racists in schools, not intentionally, but I've worked with a number of students of color locally who have talked about being asked to speak on behalf of all brown people in their classes or who have been asked to write on essay topics that were quite frankly offensive and immoral. Yet, and this is sort of also masking that. So we're having this discussion about if schools are too progressive in their thinking about race when we also have this other problem where they are perpetuating racist ideas. Well, is there anything else you want to say about either how this law has affected your teaching or the teaching of colleagues that you're aware of or how faculty or others are organizing for change or in response to these policies in addition to what you've talked about, Dr. Halter? Well, I think one uh, unique way that history gets to deal with this is we've actually assigned the law as a primary source. And one of my faculty who's teaching our methods class is having students examine it alongside a 1957 law banning comic books in the state as an act of paternalism to protect kids under the age of 18 from the demonic content of comic books. And so she's setting it up of how do we use legislation as a historical source what types of arguments could this support? What types of thinking led to the creation of these laws? Talking about the creation of laws versus the enforcement of laws, those sorts of things. And so it's been a good way to teach about historical contingency and the ways in which many factors come together to produce these sort of official sources. And then do these official sources actually reflect concerns of everyday people? So it's been an interesting way to teach about the law, to teach about what we are allowed or not allowed to do in the classroom. And I think that's had a really positive effect. Fascinating. Matt, anything else you'd add? I can't think of anything off the top of my head, looking through my notes. <laughs> um... I've done something similar where I have students look at the law itself. And then, so we ask some questions about what's the catalyst for something like this. And putting it in sort of the context and the framing of our country's history around race and racism and how this sort of fits into, into that and how the underlying emotions that might drive something like this. So this, if once if you're used to experiencing privilege, equality feels like oppression, that kind of an analysis. And then also it brings up great questions about political ideology, the idea of libertarian politics versus ideas about fascism or socialism and communism. So it fits into these conversations about what are these political ideologies and what does this law represent in those contexts? Awesome. Well, I think there's a lot more to be learned about this law and how it plays out over this year and, and in coming years. And I, I'm looking forward to keeping track of the Lieutenant Governor's Task Force, which I think probably have some explosive or controversial stories to share, whether or not those are really cause for concern or not. <laughs> I'm going to be hurt if my name is not on that list. I mean, at this point, if you're not on the blacklist, you're not doing your job. Right. Well, I heard that campus reform has a new list. So best of luck to 
each of you, if, if you would <laughs> like to appear on that list. But that's a different topic for perhaps a different conversation. Well, listen, I have really enjoyed talking with you about the situation at the University of Idaho and Idaho more broadly, the IFF, uh, the Lieutenant Governor's Task Force, and the origins and effects of this law and policy. So thank you very much, Dr. Haltoner, Dr. Schofield, and Dr. Grindle. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. The Annex is a project of the Queen's Podcast Lab from the City University of New York, Queen's College. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. My thanks to our guests from the University of Idaho. Music for The Annex is provided by Lena Orsa.